So let's go back to John again today, chapter 15, where we left off last week. Uh, I stopped in chapter 15, verse 8, where it says, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And we close this with going to Galatians 5 and showing what the fruit of the Spirit of God is. And he will begin talking here shortly about sending the Spirit when he left so that it might lead us to truth and that we might bear much fruit. So I left off with the thought that you can quantify the kind of fruit, the amount of fruit that you are producing by examining the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and seeing how much love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, and so on you have, and which areas you might be showing more strength in, and which areas you might be showing less, and try to work on those areas that you find yourself weak in, because none of us are strong by any means in all of those. And the Spirit of God does react to one degree or another with our personality. And your personality might lead you to, uh, for the Spirit to bear more fruit in some areas than in others. Some people have, let's say, uh, for instance, a positive outlook on life and everything is always coming up roses. Somebody else has a negative outlook, maybe a taciturn approach to things, and everything is always coming up thorns. So, uh, the one who is of a positive outlook on things generally might find more joy in life than somebody who tends to look at things from a negative standpoint for the most part. So, personality can have something to do with it, and uh, the fruit you produce can vary depending on your personality. Uh, There are many different kinds of fruit trees. And some require a certain type of soil, more alkaline. Some might require more of an acid soil. So, uh, your personality, the the spirit may be able to work through some aspects of it better than it is with other aspects of your personality. That's why Paul discusses that in 1 Corinthians 12 about the various gifts that we have. Some have strengths in some areas, some have strengths in other areas. So look at those fruits, and you can, you can perhaps objectively look at them there in Galatians 5 and see which ones you tend to be strongest in and where your weaknesses might lie, and then work on those areas that you have more difficulty with. Now, people have looked at bearing fruit perhaps in terms of a work or of preaching the gospel or whatever, producing fruit as a work, uh, does that have some bearing here? Uh, We'll get down a couple of verses, and I want to make a comment on that, uh, because it it fits in down in verse 16, so uh, I hope I remember to make some comments there. Because it is so uh, that fruit is born how? In human beings. In our minds, our reactions, our emotions, and our feelings. And indeed, when you're working with people, 
uh, and they begin to bear fruit toward the kingdom of God, then that is a work that can be accomplished. But it all has to do with the indwelling of God's Spirit and people beginning to live His way rather than the human, natural, carnal way. So that's what fruit is all about, is producing God's Spirit and His attributes through a human being. Whether it be you individually or whether it be collectively, as He instructed the disciples to go and help people do. I guess I'm already making my comments before we get to verse 16, but that's okay. So, he said, if you bear much fruit, so shall you be my followers, my disciples. If you bear the works of the flesh, then you are of your father, the devil. And you can read those in Galatians 5. But if you bear much fruit of the Spirit, then you are a disciple, a follower of Christ himself. So, that is the key. He says, And as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue you in my love. Well, he said, The Father loves me, and I want you to be the next generation to follow in that line of thought. So, this is a series on where is God's honor. And His honor is to have His Son follow His ways, which happened, and then to have us who come afterward do the same thing. Father, son, grandsons, or grandchildren, men and women, following in the same family line, being like their father and grandfather. Now, he says, continue in my love. And we could stop reading there and say we're supposed to have this emotional feeling and that is love. Well, love does have emotion. But let's read verse 10 and get the definition from God, an explanation of love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. So again, he states it from father to son to grandchildren. A step that we're supposed to take. Now that has been the thing that has been the problem with mankind since Adam and Eve. And all through Israel's history. God the Father was there. Christ was there as the Melchizedek of the Old Testament. He even married Israel. She entered a covenant. And then she would not live with the terms of the covenant she made. So God divorced, or Christ divorced Israel put her aside. And he began something new here with these disciples, preparing a bride, an eternal bride for his son, not a bride of the flesh that would follow the flesh. So we're to be walking in the spirit, not in the flesh. That's what the new covenant is about, to walk in the spirit, not just to keep the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. Does that mean the letter of the law is done away? No, of course not. If you keep it in the Spirit, you have to keep it in the letter. That only follows. Now, the Protestant world is always taught 
that there in the first teaching session with the disciples, Christ said, I came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And they reasoned then that he fulfilled it while he was here, and that now no one needs to keep it. That by fulfilling it, he had filled it up, he had done the job, now nobody else needed to. They forget that he said, walk as I walked, and do as I did, and think as I thought, and some of those things. But the whole Protestant world, the Catholic world, religion, believes the law is done away with. Now, we have had various scriptures to prove that that is not so. And they do often, the Protestants and others, go to Paul's writings to try to prove that a few vague things he said mean the law is done away. Now, as we know, Peter said, Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. He wrote them in such a way that the average person had trouble understanding them. And Peter was an average person, and even converted with the Spirit of God, he still had trouble understanding some of the things Paul wrote because they were very technical, and his way of writing could be taken several different ways in some cases. We have not used this teaching session from John 14 on as a major proof that the commandments are still in effect. We've used 1 John 5, 3 and some others of John's writing in the, in the three gospels, of, or three uh, shorter writings of John. But here in the gospel of John, we've kind of overlooked this section in terms of explaining it to people. But let's understand, this is a major proof text. Christ began his teaching to his disciples by saying, keep the law. And he named different laws there. But there's that one little place in there that they use as an out. Well, he fulfilled it and therefore it doesn't need to be done anymore. Because he was talking to people who were not yet converted, so they were still under the terms of the old covenant. So when he said, if you will enter life, keep the commandments, well, he was talking to this young man who was unconverted. So that guy still did have to keep the commandments, but we don't. Or to the Jews, because they were, had been under the old covenant. The old covenant had been basically wiped out at that point with the divorce. But they were still believing they were under the terms of it. So people have reasoned that, well, he was only speaking to unconverted people and Jews. And therefore, the New Covenant Church, when it started, the law is done away. Well, this is the last instruction he gave. Not the first, but the last. And in this one, he is speaking of their lives in the future when he was leaving them. So his parting instruction is very instructive. And he says here that if you're going to abide in my love, you have to keep my commandments. He was referring this to his disciples, soon to be apostles, who would have the Spirit of God in 50 days, more or less here, and who would be teaching the New Testament church under the terms of the New Covenant. And all through 
this teaching, he keeps coming back to keep the commandments. Now, what could possibly be clearer than this passage? I think I said last week, the John 14 on, in this section, this section where he gave this last teaching and then the prayer before he died, is one of the most powerful sections in the Bible. Because it is how to conduct life. It is prophecy of things that would happen to them and to those who came from them, meaning us. It is about relationships and how to get along with one another and how to get along with God. So this section of Scripture is one of the most powerfully packed sections there is in the entire Bible. It reveals more than almost any other place you can go. His final parting instructions. This is the way it is. This is the way it shall be. This is what's going to happen after I'm gone. What could be more important to, than this? So he's talking about key issues here. He's not just referring to some things on the side that might be misinterpreted. This is very clear, very plain, very well laid out, and covers all the key areas we need to understand, really. So, if you're going to have my love and my Father's love, you'll keep my commandments, and then you shall abide in, in my love, as I have done with my Father. Do we see a little more clearly then why God said at the end of Malachi that I'm thinking about two things here. I can't do that. Which one was I after? Um, oh, that we must turn our hearts to our Father. Our Father in heaven. And that's what he's talking to them about, is turning their hearts to their Father in heaven. There is nothing more important than that. But this is a time in the history of man in which people have done away with all the laws of God, nearly all the precepts of God, and have boiled it down to a gooey feeling of love as opposed to God's definition of love, which is the keeping of the commandments. This is the key issue he keeps coming back to, is being close to the Father and to Him as His Son. We need to look upon it, not just as God or the Almighty, or the healer, or all the different titles and responsibilities of God, but look upon him as he told us to pray, our Father in heaven. He wants us to be a family relationship. That's a change from the Old Testament to a great degree. He was God Almighty. He was these powerful titles. But now he's breaking it down to father and sonship. 
And that's hard for us to learn because to one degree or another, every one of us have had dysfunctional families, dysfunctional fathers, and dysfunctional children. Uh, it varies widely, but we've all been dysfunctional to one degree or another because we've not had the relationship with our parents exactly as Christ had with his father. Every family has fallen short of that. Every one of us. So we have a lot to learn about fathership, fatherhood and sonship. And he's explaining it here. You've got to keep the rules. These things, verse 11, have I spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Now, he was a man of sorrows when he was on this earth. It is clearly stated. He saw a lot of evil. He saw a lot of heartache, just as we do today. We're beginning to see more and more people starving to death, more and more war, and people butchering one another. And that is going to increase until most of the population of this earth is going to die in World War III and that which follows it. That's what is going to happen. There are people now planning to kill 90% of the people on the earth because they feel that we're highly overcrowded and that it needs to be done. Satan is behind them and he wants it done. God says it has to be done and he will use Satan and these people <clears throat> to accomplish that purpose. It's sad. And as we see it coming, we will have sorrow. And yet, he was about to tell them here shortly as we go on in the context that they were going to die. Much as he had died. Now, how can you be joyful when you are living under that knowledge? Well, you can have joy in God and joy in the future. You can have joy in the relationship that we have with Him. Full well understanding what the implications of putting God first in our lives can and shall bring upon us. So he was a man who sorrowed for the things he saw, and yet he had a great deal of joy in his relationship with his father and then with his disciples. So you can have both, can't you? You can be sad about what is coming, and yet you can have joy in that you understand the truth and know the way out of it. And you also know <clears throat> that all Israel and most of the Gentiles will be saved before this is over. But we have to trust God in faith that he is a father who can see that his children survive. Even if they die physically, then they will wake up in a resurrection humbled and ready for once in their lives to listen for a change. They will be teachable then. They are not now. Verse 12, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. <coughs> to, to the degree... It has to be this deep. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. There's another place that says that's pretty rare. 
Most people are not willing to do that, but maybe for a good man, some would choose to die if they had a really good friend. Are we ready to die for one another? And let me put it this way. Are we ready to die daily for one another? Are we willing to subject our pride, our ego, our vanity, our narcissism, selfishness, set it aside and be humble and meek and giving and sharing and thinking of others and esteeming them better than ourselves. Because that's a harder chore in some ways than throwing yourself under the bus as you shove somebody out from under it. We might give our lives for someone else. And there are historical records where people would not tell a story and would die themselves rather than seeing someone else die. It's happened. But it is a greater challenge every day to lay down our lives for each other in service and giving and helping and sharing and being uplifting and kind and gentle with one another as opposed to backbiting and stabbing and negative and backward and upside down. There is the real challenge. Are we willing daily to give our lives for each other and to submit one to another as under and to unto Christ and the Father? That's where the rub comes. That's the hard job. If we are faithful in those little things day by day, then he says we will be faithful in much. When it comes down to physically perhaps giving our lives, that will come naturally if we are doing it on a daily basis. That's what counts. Are we bearing much fruit of the Spirit in our relationships with one another? Reminding ourselves again that he says we will be judged according to how we deal with others. If we're merciful, if we're kind, if we're forgiving, we will be given mercy, kindness, and forgiveness. If we harbor their sins, their mistakes, if we hang on to our grievances, God will hang on to our grievances. It's that simple. So how you, we, in this room, treat one another on a daily basis is exactly how God is going to judge us. I've said that several times lately, but I don't think it can probably be overemphasized because that's what the Scriptures say. It's just that simple. Hard to keep in mind because of the way we are. So lay down your life for your friends daily. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. So he's laying down the rules of friendship here, if you will. There are all kinds of things you can read in all kinds of magazines, articles about friendship and true friendship and who is a friend and who isn't a friend. And it's in the ladies' magazines and the men's magazines and the tabloids and everywhere you want to go. You can read stuff. But here, Christ is laying down the rules of friendship. What is a true friend? 
You're my friends if you do what I command you. And here he's been saying over and over and will again to keep the Ten Commandments, which are summarized in loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Henceforth, from this beginning, he says. Now, I think we reviewed this recently. There are very, very few places in the Bible where God called mankind friend. I think Moses and Abraham are the only cases, as I recall. But here, he's talking to the disciples and those who would come after, meaning us, ever since them, as it came down through history. From now on, he said, I call you not servants, but friends. For the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known to you. He wasn't withholding anything as a friend. He was giving all he had. He was giving all he had been given. And then he is telling us, give of yourselves everything you are, everything you have to one another. That's what friendship is really all about. Now, that goes without saying all things that are legal to give. Because he always kept his father's commandments. So we give everything that we can legally give one to another as friends. We don't hold back. Ananias and Sapphira claim to be friends, they claim to be members. See, they claim to be part of the church, but they held back from their other friends and lied. They were not true friends. When they were asked to do something, they conspired and did not do it and then tried to lie their way through it. They lied to the Holy Spirit, they lied to God, and they lied to mankind. And God took care of that very, very quickly. He will do those things again. When things become dramatic for good, they will become dramatic for bad. We think we get away with things now. No, God is being patient. He's being merciful. He's giving space for repentance. He's giving opportunity. But when he decides that he is going to bless greatly, then he will also punish greatly. It goes both ways. You see, human beings cannot stand blessing for the most part. The moment we are blessed, we tend to forget God and we become self-satisfied. So he has to remove those and give us trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties. And then we turn to him. Now that's why we've been going through 25 years now of the church splintered and in a mess is so that we might turn to him wholeheartedly and look how slowly it comes you would think with this understanding of what has happened and is happening that we would very quickly turn but we are so slow to change aren't we so very slow 
And what chance does most of the church have that don't even yet to this day understand what's happened to the church and why it has happened? God spewed us all out. But they all choose to say they spewed everybody but me. I'm good in their Laodicean. So nobody changes. Well, we've come to see that we were not what we should be. And we need to change. But even then, we're very slow at it. Verse 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Do we think that we came across a knowledge of the truth on our own? No. John 6, 44, No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. He had to open your mind or you could not understand the things that we're reading. Nobody on this earth except those few whose, God's, whose minds God has opened understand the truth. They may understand a few technicalities. They might be able to quote the Bible word for word, but they don't understand what they're reading. God had to open your mind. If He didn't open your mind, you can't get it. The whole Protestant world, the whole Catholic world, do not understand the Bible at all. I hope we grasp that. Well, the rest of the world doesn't pay attention to the Bible anyway. So they don't understand. It is the few that God has called and opened the minds to understand. How simple is it? Really? Couldn't anybody read John 14 through 17 and understand the Ten Commandments are in effect? Couldn't anybody understand that? That is so simple, isn't it? And yet, none of them do. And if they say we should keep the commandments, they don't anyway. But very few even recognize that. So he said, I've chosen you. I opened your minds. He called them, just as he has us. He went around where they were fishing or collecting taxes or whatever. He says, I want you and you and you and you. And he's done the same thing with us. Everybody here who has the Spirit of God was called individually, personally, by name. We won't even get into the question of why much. Weak in base. What else can you say? He's ordained us that we should go or they should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Now they were to go out and preach and teach others and to make disciples. God would open the minds and they would go to them and teach them. And that would be fruit. What are those in the first resurrection called? First fruits. So they were to produce people who would have the Spirit of God, would follow the way of God, 
and would then produce what? Fruit for Christ, for the Father, and the kingdom of God. So they were to produce fruit of the Spirit in themselves, and they were to go to others and teach the truth, so that those people might produce fruit for God as well, the fruit of the Spirit of God. So you could say it was to make disciples, or it was to do a work, in a way that's true, but the fruit itself is those things that are listed as what the Spirit of God produces. They weren't to go teach people to produce farm and orchard produce. They were to teach them to live by the Spirit and the way of God. So that's what the fruit is. And that fruit is expressed in human beings because they're the only ones that can produce the fruit of the Spirit. Dogs can't, cats can't, cows can't, birds can't, only humans can't. And I don't go out and preach to the birds. I come here and talk to us. Because you are the ones who can produce the fruit of the Spirit in your lives. When we in our lives. So bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. See, if it's, if it's part of your character, part of your mind, even if you die, that is recorded by God and held, not consciously, but held until the resurrection where that character is renewed in life. So it remains. It's never destroyed. Your body may rot, but God has a recording, whatever that means exactly. The Spirit goes back to God who gave it, and it is there, inert, the dead know nothing, so you're not conscious or thinking or looking down from heaven because no man has gone there except he who ascended. Not even David, it said, has gone there. Why can't people get that? It's just a pure, simple statement in the book of Acts that no man has gone to heaven except he who came down. Not even David, who's going to be the ruler of all Israel in the kingdom of God. See how little they understand? When I said they don't understand the Bible, I meant exactly what I said. They can read a simple statement and then they'll still believe you're going to go to heaven when you die. Or to hell. But it's not biblical. It's not what the book says. It says just the opposite. So the whole Protestant Catholic world, the whole Bible world, if you will, believes just the opposite of the truth. So your fruit remains <clears throat> if you produce righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, and you help others grow in that, then that fruit will remain. That whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So it has to be by his authority and something that he would approve. It doesn't mean that you, if you are producing the fruit of God, you can just ask for anything and get it. No, it has to be that which is something he would approve and you can use his authority in his name to go ask for. Those things can be legally given to you. <clears throat> A new car is not necessarily what fits here. 
but health, healing, blessing of various kinds, a settled mind, a lack of worry, peace, joy, those things can come. These things I command you that you love one another. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. So if people hate us because of what we believe, hey, that's acceptable. That's no problem. He tells us here, don't make it a problem. They're going to hate you because they hated me. They killed him. And they're going to kill some who obey God. It is going to come to the point very shortly on this earth that if you keep the Sabbath, they will do everything they can to kill you. Sabbath, the holy days, the laws, everything of God that you try to do, the new world order is going to be against. And they will kill you for it. So if you are left behind and are not accounted worthy to escape what is about to come, your number is up. They will be after you. And they will kill you if you choose to serve God. It's just what's going to happen. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. If you thought like them, acted like them, talked like them, did the things they do, oh, hey, brother, I love you. They like you when you're like them. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you get along too well with the world, that should tell you something. If the world likes you too much, you're probably not enough like God. Because if you do all the things that God says to do, they're not going to like you much. Your friends, your relatives in the world... Most of us don't have much to do with our physical relatives in the world, do we? Because they think we have this strange, weird, cultish religion. And they don't want to be around us. And we don't want to be around them much. And we think, well, you know, there's a, there's a blood bond there. And you want, to, you want to go see your relatives sometimes. But you find once you get there and you've said, hi, how are you? And how's the dog? And, you know, uh, there's not much left to talk about. And you get ready to leave pretty quickly. You went to stay two weeks, and after two days, you're ready to leave. That's just pretty much the way it is, because we don't have those things in common with them. And they look at us as though we're weird, whether they'll say it or not. And relatives will, sometimes before the world will. But we're different. We just are. Remember the word that I said to you, verse 20, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. I got pretty heavy persecution from aunts and uncles and some of my cousins when I was a kid and we were trying to do what was right. They didn't like it when we left the Methodist church. They'd try to feed me pork. They'd try to feed me shrimp every time they'd get me away from my parents. They would make comments about our religion. It was just part of the deal. Then you learn to shrug it off. But all these things will they do to you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. 
They just don't know God. They say they do. But didn't John say, they say they love me and they don't keep my commandments. They are a liar and the truth is not in them. Well, anybody that says the commandments of God are done away do not have the truth. And the truth is not in them. And they're liars. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know God. If I had not come and spoken to them, they had not had sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. I mean, can you read 14, 15, 16, 17 of John and have a cloak for your sin when he makes it so clear here what true religion is all about? And that the world, the, the religious world, denies he that hates me hates my father also. He says, if you don't keep my commandments, you hate me. It's his way of life. And if we hate his way of life, then we hate him. It's one and the same. We may think we have love in our heart, but it isn't the love of God. He that hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. Now, we are called at the end time to be part of a remnant of God's people who do obey Him, who do serve Him, who are His witnesses that He is God. They will hate us just as they hated Him. They will try to kill us just as they killed Him. But God will have to give absolute protection, otherwise all of us would die. That's the way it will be. But he will give that. So if they hated Christ, they're going to hate us. Count on it. That's prophecy. But this comes to pass, that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Speaking of the Jews, the Old Testament, the prophecies are in there where it says that they hated him without a cause. Psalm 35:19 or 69:4. But when the Comforter is come, the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceeds from the Father, it shall testify of me. Well, he, spent, he sent his Spirit on Pentecost. And then it was in those apostles, and they wrote these words, that the truth might be revealed to us. Thy word is truth. This word, this book, John seventeen seventeen, I think it is. Let me check myself. Yeah. And you shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So they were with him from the beginning of his ministry and would testify and would write these things. And then we read them and we live them. And then we're going to go through everything they went through, aren't we? Because it will repeat itself. <coughs> it's coming soon. These things have I spoken to you, beginning chapter 16, that you should not be offended. 
This is critical information, isn't it? I'm telling you all of this so that you won't turn aside, you won't get offended, you won't wonder, where is God? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to us? It's all laid out for us here, isn't it? Exactly what will happen. We know ahead of time. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. They don't know God. They don't know you. They don't know God's truth. And the time is coming. It did to them, and they were crucified, all except John. And they tried to kill him. And these things are written to us upon whom the ends of the world have come. And they're going to be repeated again in the same way that they were then, only in a much larger fashion. It will not just be the Roman world, it will be the whole world who fights the few who obey God. And they will. They have a false God, they have a false Christ, they'll have a false Messiah, and they will think those who follow the true God need to be killed And that will do God's service. These things will they do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. Now it was the Jews who were behind the killing of Christ for the most part. We understand that I killed him, don't we? My sins killed him. Your sins killed him. But those who were directly involved at the time were the Jews in particular. And he told them, you don't know God in heaven. The one you claim to be your father is not your father. He said, you think you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he says, you don't. You worship Satan, the devil. You're liars, and he's the father of liars, and he's your father. You don't even identify with the true God. People get upset with us when we tell them, that they don't know God and that they're worshiping Satan. But that's literally what they are doing. They may think they're worshiping the true God, but they don't keep His commandments. So they're liars and the truth is not in them and they do not worship God, but He who lies and don't even know it. Now, some do. They openly admit that they worship Satan. They're Luciferians. They don't even have the name right. But there are a lot of people who think they're worshiping the God of the Bible. They don't even know him. Don't know who he is. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. Now, these things are imminent. Again, it won't be long till this all comes down. So we need to be remembering and thinking about this. Have it clearly in mind. Review it. These things I said not to you at the beginning because I was with you. So he's saying, this is my parting shot. I didn't tell you all this at the beginning. Now, he told them how they should live in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? And that they were to keep all the commandments in the Spirit, not just in the letter. 
But now he's giving them advice, final things he's saying. This is how to live. This is what's going to happen. This is very vital information. <clears throat> These things I said not at the beginning. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. This, this sounds bad. It says, are they going to kill you? Think they you've got a service? You know, somebody tells you that. that. That could create a problem for you, couldn't it? But because I have said these things, sorrows filled your heart. Nevertheless, verse 7, I tell you the truth. Here, here is the truth. It is good for you, it is expedient for you, that I go away. Partings are hard. They have been with him for three and a half years, and goodbyes do not come easily, do they? But he had to go away, and it was important that he go away. It was good for them. Now, how can it be good for God to leave you, to be away from you? For I, if I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send it to you. I think that is easily explained by looking at the Passover itself. There they were at the most solemn ceremony of the year, having the last Passover with Christ, whereby he changed the symbols from sacrificing animals to the bread and the wine. And without the Spirit of God, even though Christ was with them sitting at the table, they didn't get it. They sat there and argued among themselves about who was the greatest. And the greatest who ever lived was sitting there with them, and they could only argue among themselves which was the best of the bunch. So even being with Christ doesn't do you much good unless you have the Spirit dwelling in you. Now, He had the Spirit of God, and He was with them, but that was not enough. So he said, it's, going, it's better for you if I go away and send you the Spirit to dwell in you, because he says later, it's been with you, but it will be in you, combined with your mind so that you can truly understand. What an incredible gift that is. Now, we might blindly assume that if Christ was sitting right here in the room with us and he was talking to us, that that would be the greatest thing that could be. <clears throat> well, no, that's what was. And it wasn't the best thing for them. He needed to go and send the Holy Spirit that their minds might be opened and they might think of something besides how great they were. They didn't sing, How great thou art. They sang, How great I am. That was their song. If I depart, I will send it to you. Verse 8, And when it is come, it will reprove the world of sin. What is sin? 1 John 3, 4, Sin is the transgression of the commandments. So, he who comes with the true Spirit of God 
will teach that the commandments are there and that we should not sin. But the world and its religions teaches the commandment is done away and therefore you do not sin. You're under grace only and everything is automatically just forgiven and everything's fine. That's a lie. The Holy Spirit will reprove the world of sin. And it did through the writings of these men who had the Holy Spirit. The law is still in effect. And people were still sinning in those days as they are today. And that's the breaking of God's commandments. Reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. This word is here to tell true righteousness, to tell the world what the sin is and what the judgment is going to be. That's what the witness against the world has got to be at the end time when the body of Christ and the two witness to the world. That's the crux of the message right there, verse 8. Well, 9 and 10. Of sin because they believe not me. Not just believe his name, but they don't believe him. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Who is going to be leading this new world order? Satan, the devil. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the prince of this world and the present evil ruler of the world. And he rules in the hearts of all men except those few who have been called out and been given the Spirit of God. And he only gives his Spirit to them who obey. Acts 5.29 or 32, I think it is. Obey what? The law. You cannot have the Spirit of God unless you obey the law, keep the Ten Commandments. People say, well, these... These people have the Spirit of God, these Protestants over here. No, they don't. They have a Spirit, but it is not the Spirit of God. Because God only gives His Spirit to those who obey His law. It is that clear and that simple. I don't care how righteous they may appear, how kind and how sweet they are, I had a grandmother, I've said before, probably as sweet a person as you ever saw. She was kind, she was loving, she was gentle, she wouldn't argue, she didn't fight. She was just a nice person. But she was a Methodist, and the Methodists believe the law of God is done away and you don't need to keep it. And she did not have the Spirit of God. She had a kind human spirit. And she did not know she was worshiping Satan, the devil, and his way. That would have horrified her to tell her that. But it's true. Satan's ministers or angels or demons transform themselves and appear as angels of light. They can appear to be godly. So you can have a demon spirit 
who appears as godly as anyone who keeps the laws of God. I think my grandmother fit that category. She did not know what she worshipped. But she didn't obey God. She thought his laws were done away. She kept Sunday and she kept Christmas and she kept Easter and she ate pigs. And she did everything the Protestant world does. And she didn't know any better. I'm not condemning her. I'm not knocking my grandmother. I loved her dearly. She just didn't understand. God had not opened her mind. She will be, I am sure, in the second resurrection. And she probably will adapt to God's ways quite quickly. Because that's the kind of mind and emotion she had. But God did not choose to, kill, to, to call her in this life. Just as he has not chosen to call many of your friends and relatives and children and so on. It is not their time. He is only calling a few to do a work and to be there as the bride of Christ in the world tomorrow to teach the rest of the world that survives the Holocaust to come and those who are resurrected in the second resurrection to be taught the truth then. So it's not a matter of them being any worse than we are. I say these things, but my grandmother was probably a better person by far than I am. By nature, as a human being, God just didn't call her. Maybe she was too mighty and noble as a human being to be called now. He called me because I'm weak and base by nature, and it'll be to God's glory if Daryl Henson ever makes it into the kingdom of God. That will be glory to God, believe me. You probably do. But it's a fact. And the same is true of most of us. There are very few who are mighty and noble among us. In fact, I don't really know of any here. Uh, would anybody like to nominate someone? Somebody that's mighty and noble? Pretty quiet. No, it isn't because we are better people that God has opened our minds. It's probably because, for the most part, we were worse people. And it is his to, to His glory that He can give us His Spirit and transform us from being carnal, wretched, rotten, selfish human beings to become friends of God. True friends who do everything He says. So some people think, well, you think you're better than us. No, we don't. We're worse. That's the reason God called us. To fix us. To make something dysfunctional, functional. And we believe, do we not, that through faith, patience, hope, and hard work, we can be transformed. And we're working on it. And we all have a long way to go, but that should not be discouraging. He knew what we were when he called us. And he knows what he can do with us. And he's working on us with trials, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, tests, occasional blessings to get us to be the way he wants us to be. It's a hard life. It's a difficult life. 
And if we didn't believe in a great reward, we are of all men most miserable, right? It is not easy to fight yourself every day, to grow, to change, to overcome, to be different than what you are. It's very difficult. And if there was no resurrection to life, then we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, party on, have all the fun we want to have, do all the things that we would want to do on our bucket list or in life, and live it up, because tomorrow we die and it's all over, so enjoy yourself. But we don't, because we know better, and we believe that there is a great reward for those who will, will, do, who will do things God's way. And that's why we're willing to listen to sermons like this and talk about things as they really are. It's because we know in our hearts that God can transform us into God beings when this is all said and done. We believe it. And therefore, we push forward against all odds, against all our nature, to be what we're supposed to be. It isn't easy. But he says if we follow through on this, we will be hated. And they hate him and his father both. Verse 25, But this comes to pass... The word might be fulfilled that is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceeds from the Father, it will testify of me. And you also shall bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. Oh, I've already gone. I'm already down in chapter 16. I, I looked back up in the wrong place. We were down about verse 7 of 16. It is expedient for you. It's good for you. I go away. That's, that was the thought that led me where I went. If I depart, I'll send it to you. When it has come, it will reprove the world uh, and judge it. And we're to be righteous judges. And we're to tell the world what is wrong. Verse 12, that's where I left off. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. They didn't have the Spirit yet. He's already said they'll kill you, they'll hate you. But he said there's, there's more, but you're not ready for it. I can't quite tell you now. How be it, when it, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth has come, it will guide you into all truth. For it shall not speak of itself, but whatsoever it shall hear, that shall it speak. And it will show you things to come. So, why did God give John the revelation? Because it would show things to come in the end. They didn't need to know that at that time. It wasn't going to come on them. They lived under the false impression that Christ was going to return in their lifetimes. And he was still 2,000 years away. But he let them labor under that misconception till almost the end of their lives. And just before they died, martyred, they realized he's not coming back before we die. 
So he gave the book of Revelation to John, who wrote this book, shortly before he died at almost 100 years of age, just before 100 A.D., to write down for us. So when the Spirit came, things were revealed that had not been known before. So this is a prophetic thing. It shall glorify me, for it shall receive of mine, and shall show it to you. So, it received from Christ through the Spirit of God, came into the minds of the apostles, and now us, so that we might understand. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it to you. So, God the Father had given Christ all the, the knowledge. Now, he even said the one thing that God had held back from him was the exact time of his return. He says, no man knows. So I don't even know. Just the Father. <coughs> so we've all been trying to figure it out ever since. It isn't given to us to know that. What is given to us is know how to live, to know what is about to come upon us, and to be prepared so that when he does come, we're ready for it. Not have a date in mind. There are people who are claiming it's all going to end in December of next year. They are absolutely dead wrong. It is not going to end in December of 2012. There is not... Another planet coming that's going to strike and kill all mankind. I will guarantee you, based on the word of God, that is a lie. It's not going to happen. This book says that villages have to be built in the days of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the two witnesses. That Jerusalem has to be built, and it will take 70 weeks until even the abomination of desolation occurs from the time the command is given to build it. And then the abomination comes, and there's three and a half years of the times of the Gentiles. And then there's the first resurrection, and then, then there's... A year of the seven last plagues. This thing is years away. Now you can get on talk radio and get your religion there if you want to. And you can believe that Iribu is coming and that's the end of the world because the Mayans' calendar ran out. Maybe they broke their pencil. I don't know what happened. And I don't really even care what the Mayans believed or thought. Because God's Word tells me that this and this and this and this has to happen before He returns. And all of that three and a half years of tribulation and a year of plagues and all the things that have to happen before the abomination is even set up is going to take five, six, seven years. Maybe more. 2027 may not be too far off. If that's the true year of Jubilee and the return of Christ. That's only 16 years away. Now, if you're 16, that doesn't mean much. 
If you're 76, it might mean quite a bit to you. But then God can renew you as the eagle too, can't he? It doesn't matter. Some of us will probably die before Christ returns. Some of us already have. Some will live to see it. This generation shall not pass before he returns. But it isn't coming next year in December. Forget that. I don't care what they have to say. The Bible contradicts it completely, totally, irrevocably. He will show you things to come. All right, the Bible tells us a lot of things that still have to happen. See how easy it is to dispel something like Iribu? Now it's possible there could be a comet or a meteor or there could be a planet hit the earth. I'm not saying that nothing catastrophic might not happen. It could. It could be a sign from Satan the devil, but it's not going to be the end of mankind. So whatever is coming, it isn't that devastating. Remember that. I didn't say nothing would happen. It could. But it's not going to be what they're saying it will be. Because the Bible contradicts that. Verse 14, It shall glorify me, for it shall receive of mine, and shall show it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore said I, that he shall take of mine and shall show it to you. So he's not holding anything back. Everything that his Father told him, he was willing to share. But his Father didn't tell him when it would happen. A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he said to us, A little while and you shall not see me, and again a little while and you shall see me? And on top of that, because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, What is this that he says? A little while. We can't tell what he says, what he means. They never did really figure it out, did they? Because they still expected him to return in a little while before they died. Now, Emmanuel knew that they were desirous to ask him and said to them, Do you inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while and you shall not see me and again a little while and you shall see me? He, he said it on purpose the way he said it. and He knew it would confound them. Truly, truly, I say to you that you shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and you shall be sorrowful but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. So he says, for a while now, the world is going to think they're going on and everything's of peace and safety and they're just having a good life. And you're going to be living a life of sorrow, of difficulty, of trials, troubles, and tribulations. But yours is going to turn to joy and theirs is going to turn into grief because there is cause and effect. And if we are willing to beat our bodies into subjection, to make our minds and thoughts go where they're supposed to go, there will be joy in the end. The world is just letting it go, doing anything that feels good to them. But one of these days, he says, it's going to come crashing down on them. And all the fun they thought they were having is going to become grief. 
It says, Yours will be turned to joy. A woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, because her hour is come, and it's painful. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. doesn't matter how hard the labor is and how you feel at the time. haven't been there. I've heard you talk about it. And I can only imagine the pain that comes with childbirth and how hard that is. And yet... As soon as you're holding that little baby in your arms, you forget the pain. It just goes away of joy of that sweet little baby, ugly as it may be. Wrinkled, red, got stuff all over it. But when they lay it on your chest, how happy that is. And it gets better looking in a few days. She doesn't remember that anymore. So he says, when we are born into the kingdom of God, finally, we'll forget all this that we've gone through. It'll all be past, done. Forget that. Here's happiness and joy. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. Truly, truly. Well, I guess I skip verse 22. And you now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice... In your joy, no man takes from you. Now, they didn't know that they were going to die and lay in the grave. It would be a long time before it happened. But, you know, when you're dead, you don't notice time going by. You're not bored. You're not frustrated. You're not unhappy. You're not joyful. You're just dead. And time does not pass. You can die, and a split second later, as far as your consciousness is concerned, you're resurrected. Some of those who are in their graves today who have qualified for the kingdom of God, like John and Peter and James and some people that you've known, are in some ways better off than us. Their reward is secure and they're not fighting life anymore. In the next instant of their consciousness, they'll be rising from the earth. No man can take that from you. And in that day, you shall ask me nothing. (laughs) Questions will all be over. You won't need to ask questions about doctrine or faith or hope or love or anything else. When you rise out of the ground or off the earth, hey, this is exciting. All the pain of childbirth will be forgotten that you were born into the kingdom of God. That's the analogy he's using. You'll ask me nothing. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. See, he calls it a mystery, doesn't he? The mystery of God. And it is mysterious to us to understand that this human flesh could become spirit and become God and not die. And our minds would be clear and they would be where they're supposed to be instead of where they tend to be. Everything is going to be good. Hey, all questions answered. The mystery of God is resolved. Now we know. Now we are. That will be an exciting time. You won't have to ask for anything. You'll have it all. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. 
Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. So he says, look to the resurrection. Look to the return of Christ. There's where your real joy is, and that's when real joy is going to come. So one of the fruits of God's Spirit is the joy of looking forward to what we shall be, not what we see and feel today, because it isn't always pleasant, but we can have joy in the future. These things have I spoken to you in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak to you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. And they understood after the Spirit came, just as we do. At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not to you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. It's not just me, he says. The Father loves you. He's kindly affectioned toward you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. So, because you believe and follow Christ and do the things that he did, the Father can't help but love you. He is that emotional. He is that feeling. He is that deep. He is that caring. Those who will follow his way of life, he just loves them. I came forth from the Father and come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said to him, Now you speak plainly and don't speak a proverb. Now we get it. Of course, they didn't really. Now are we sure that you know all things and need not that any man should ask you? By this we believe that you came forth from God. Emmanuel answered them, Do you now believe? He knew they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. They had some emotion. They had some feelings. They thought they comprehended. But he says, Do you really Behold, the hour comes, yes, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And he knew that Peter would deny him three times and run. Oh, yeah, they thought they believed, but they didn't really yet. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So you'll depart from me, but I do have the Father. They're saying this that they might remember someday. You look to your Father in heaven. Pray, our Father. Look to Him every day of your life. Because I'm going, but I'm telling you about your Father in heaven. And even though all of you may leave me, I have Him. These things have I spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. It can be done. He did do it. And we can do it also, because he is in us, living his life in us, and we know the Father, and we will do his will, and we will be a part of his kingdom someday. That is the positive approach that we need to have. We can look at ourselves and become discouraged. That's why we have to look up and look to Him and realize He overcame the world and if He lives His life in us, we can do it too and we can be forgiven when we do slip and we can be in the kingdom of God. So let's stop there.